Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and it's a pleasure to have you here with me today. Okay, today's episode, I share a Dharma talk I gave recently on the theme of mindfulness of breathing. And what I try to convey in essence is that the practice of mindfulness of breathing supports the refinement of attention. And I say it that way because most people tend, when they come to mindfulness of breathing, they tend to think that the object of the exercise, meaning sort of the name of the game, is to keep your attention continuously connected to the experience of breathing. So there's something magical or intrinsically uh, good or insightful or wise about the breath itself. But the emphasis that I give here is that we use the breath, not because it's intrinsically special, but the breath is just a readily available object of attention vis-a-vis which we can really refine our own attention. And then it's that skill of attention that, as it sharpens, opens us up to a deeper understanding of the causal mechanisms beneath or within our experience. In other words, we see how our our experience is, is, is more and more a fabricated production in a way. Um, and mindfulness of breathing, when we really start to settle into finding the rhythm within that, that gives us a palpable, tangible, somatic uh, grounding in this uh, understanding of the causal dynamic of our experience. So it's, it's a really wonderfully rich theme. It's one that I think is, is best suited for more advanced meditators as I get into in this talk. But if you are just starting out with meditation and you're beginning with the breath, I hope some of the reflections that I share um, ease your entry into that practice or maybe even refresh whatever wherever you are within your uh, practice if you're using the breath as an object. So I hope you enjoyed today's talk. Before I give it to you, I just want to say that if you're interested in supporting the show, uh, one easy way to do that is to head over to our website on our shop page. This is at joshsummers.net forward slash shop, S-H-O-P, where you will see we have on-demand workshops that focus on the, the basics and even more the intermediate level material of yin yoga looking at how yin yoga impacts the body physically and benefits the connective tissue in our joints, but also how yin yoga impacts the energy body through the lens of Chinese medicine. And as someone who practiced acupuncture for 20 years, I've always been interested in how the physical practice of yin yoga uh, influences or brings about a improved circulation slash harmonization of the internal energetic state and how much that conditions kind of a softness and equilibrium of the emotional or psycho-emotional being, um, and how, how all of that harmonization internally, in turn, supports a much smoother entrance into meditation and gives the individual, <clears throat> in my opinion, much easier access to quote-unquote samadhi states, that is, states of calm serenity, and from calm serenity, as, as the Buddhist tradition has often suggested, from calm serenity, it becomes much easier to have a crystal clear perception or penetrative insight into the nature of experience from that deep clarity. So we try to offer a suite of practices, both yin yoga, 
qigong or energy work in Chinese medicine um, and meditation as a way of harmonizing the energy in preparation for deeper wisdom and compassion practices of, from the meditation or Buddha Dharma path. So we have a variety of workshops, uh, courses, and classes online that you can purchase that um, speak to all of those themes. Um, if you just head over to joshsummers.net forward slash shop, you can see what we have that might work for you and your interest level. Um, but the final thing I'll say too is if you'd like then to practice with Terry and me in a more ongoing way, we have formed an online practice community called the Riverbird Sangha, where each week we teach four online classes over Zoom focusing on meditation, qigong, and yin yoga. Uh, and if you're not able to attend live, all of those classes are recorded and archived in our library for whenever it's convenient for you or whether you'd like to go back and retake certain classes or listen again and again to help uh, deepen and reinforce the, the central themes and, and reflections we share. So if any of that's of interest, if you'd like to, if you'd like to have an online practice community that's low-key and, and quite warm and relaxed, consider joining the Sangha. The sliding scale uh, membership that you offer us really goes a long way to support the work here at the podcast, and uh, we just want to extend our deep gratitude for all the members listening and for anyone that might be curious about joining. Um, so you can, again, just head over to joshsummers.net forward slash sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A, and sangha just means I'm using the term loosely to refer to a community of like-minded practitioners who value the heart and mind qualities of the Buddha Dharma, wisdom and compassion. Okay, now without further ado, I give you today's talk, Relaxing with Breathing. For this evening's talk, I'd like to start with a quotation from a 15th century Japanese Zen master. And, and this Zen master has a, a story that, that will turn up in this, in this talk at some point. But the quote, uh, and his name was, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is Ikkyu. Ikkyu. It, it sounds like Nikkyu without the N. Ikkyu. I-K-K-Y-U. And this quote says, many paths lead from the foot of the mountain, but at the peak, we all gaze at the single bright moon. So many paths lead from the foot of the mountain, as many ways up, but at the peak, we all gaze at the single bright moon. And you've probably heard something like that somewhere. There's memes that go around on social media, <clears throat> one mountain many paths, one mountain. And I thought the quote, when I found the quote, it, it kind of reminded me of uh, a very important theme in spiritual practice. And that's the theme of the difference between the map and the territory. So there's, you know, if you think of the mountain with, with many paths going up, um, you could imagine a cartographer drawing or, or, or creating a map of those paths. And uh, the idea of the map is that it will help the, the person on the journey 
to find their way on the path and to traverse the path to reach the goal. But it's important to remember that the map is not the territory. And countless people I've studied with try to reiterate that point, that the map is not the territory. The map, in a way, is a conceptualization, you know, conceptualization through thought and idea about what the territory is. But it's always going to be imperfect or incomplete or um, un incapable of fully capturing the totality of the reality of, of the terrain. And I'm, I'm bringing this up because a Dharma talk or the Dharma in general, the Dharma is the, 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 uh, the embodiment of the, the Buddha's teachings on freedom and peace and well-being. Um, the Dharma itself is a kind of, is a map, really. All the teachings that the Buddha gave behind are just uh, his best effort, I think, to leave breadcrumbs or <clears throat> a trail of popcorn or some clues on how, like sort of helpful hints for how to walk this path of transformation. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm bringing this up because really in the way I am approaching sharing the Dharma with you, um, I'm essentially trying to draw from the best descriptions of the map that I've heard over the years and just convey them and, and, and share them with you. Um, but there's many, one thing that can get a little confusing, and I'll, I'll try to be clear about this as we proceed, but sometimes the maps, you know, different traditions or different schools or different teachers can sound like they're speaking from different maps. Um, and uh, sometimes it can seem like the maps are, are talking about different mountains, or the one's talking about a mountain, one's talking about a maybe a, a, a different kind of a topography altogether. Um, and so it can get a little confusing. And um, and I, I just want to try to start to speak about the, like a bigger picture of, of the Dharma map and try to contextualize the various tools and reflections and exercises that we work together with um, so that Essentially, when you approach any technique, uh, there's a tendency, and I'll speak about it when we talk about the breath today, but there's a tendency with any technique to become a little bit myopic about the technique itself and to get <clears throat> quite particular and maybe, and I speak from my own practice here, maybe a little obsessive about the technique. And in doing so, there's kind of a, a, a losing of a loss of the big picture. So the, the forest kind of um, <clears throat> vanishes to the particulars of the tree. Um, but if we think of the, the Dharma as a map, um, one of the things you know, we'd want to know about the Dharma is what, what is the map? Where is the map taking us? Where is, what is the direction that the map, map is leading? And this is, where again, where it can get a little um, confusing in that different traditions, different teachers will call forth different facets of the Dharma in, in terms of what they describe in their teaching. And there's a very, I think I've shared this with you in the past, but there's a very famous story about sort of an analogy that the Buddha gave of a bunch of, like a handful, say half a dozen 
blindfolded individuals brought to a room where there's a big elephant. And they're each allowed to touch the elephant, but they're blindfolded. So they don't see that it's an elephant. But in touching the elephant, then then they're asked, well, what do you what do you what do you, what is what do you what is this? What are you touching? And the person touching the ear says something like, oh, it's a it feels like a big fan. And the person um, <clears throat> touching the the the, the, the tusk says oh, it's a I think this is a spear. And the person who touches the trunk says, oh, no, it's a it's a python. And then the person that touches the a leg says, no, 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 it's a it's a tree trunk. <laughs> So they're all touching the same elephant, but due to the particulars of where they're in contact with it, you know, their expression of their, their, their contact with that reality will sound different. And so when we think about the Dharma, uh, the reason why I think this, 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 this old story is helpful is because <clears throat> some teachers talk about, as, and as I often will, that the, the, the big picture of the Dharma is that it's pointing to a dimension of being that is at peace, independent of conditions. So independent of circumstances, there's a potential for peace that many systems say is already existent within us. That's already here. That just needs to be uncovered and realized. But other, you know, if peace isn't your, your, your word, you know, there some, some traditions refer to the, the, a sense of wholeness, like a real sense of being feeling complete and utter and, and, and fully alive. Some put it in, con, in in terms of qualities of the heart. Uh, so there's descriptions of um, with awakening, there's a sense of uh, sort of an impersonal or universal quality of love, kindness, compassion that arise and emerge or uh, that are uncovered. But this is the central hypothesis in the Dharma. If you, if you want to look at it this way, that there's this, hypothesis that there is something to the human experience that um, is released from the the ways that the human mind kind of turns itself around and generates unnecessary suffering. The, The phrase I was thinking of before the talk is that there's a kind of a freedom from the tyranny of thought freedom from the tyranny of thought. So that's the hypothesis. And I say it's a hypothesis because it's not something, this is not a doctrine that any of you or myself need believe. It's something to be tested. So the hypothesis is something you test in the laboratory of experience or the laboratory of your practice. So the practice the practice path is the, you know, the injunction that we follow to realize or start to come to understand what the path is pointing to, what the, what the nature of the path is. And, um, you know, I, I, I remember when I first got into the Dharma, I was reading a lot of books by this philosopher, American philosopher, Ken Wilber, and he, he tried to frame contemplative practice with within the, the basic structure of the scientific method. And he, he essentially said, you know, the, the meditation practice is the injunction. You, you, you perform an injunction. So when you run an experiment, you, do, you run the experiment, that's the injunction. You perform uh, the test. And then while performing the injunction, you 
gather data from the experiment. As you gather data, you then check in with other people who have run the same experiment. And as as Ken tried to point out, it says, you know, if you're if you have not learned geometry and algebra and trigonometry, you aren't qualified to verify the truth of the Pythagorean theorem, as an example. You have to become you're sort of trained and educated enough to do the test yourself and then confirm or reject the claims of, say, the, the Pythagorean theorem. In more practical sense, you know, it, if if you want to know what a pumpkin pie or an apple pie or a blueberry pie or a pecan pie, whatever kind of pie you like, you want to know what that pie tastes like, you have to make the pie, you have to bake it. So making the pie, following the recipe, that's the injunction. And then the tasting of the pie is the apprehension, the direct contact, the direct experience of the reality. So the question is, what is the, what is the Dharma injunction? What is the, what is the, the, the central injunction of the Dharma? What is the, the test that we're running? And I, um, I want to borrow a, a story I've used for a number of years, but I, I always knew this story in more of a generic format. And it's a story about the same Zen master that I mentioned earlier, Ikkyu. I didn't know his name until recently. Um, the story I want to share is about a seeker who comes to Ikkyu. I always knew it was just comes to a Zen master. But the student, the seeker comes and asks the Ikkyu, the Zen master, what is the highest wisdom? What is the highest wisdom? And another way of saying this is, what's the Dharma? And Ikkyu drop or picks up his calligraphy brush, dips it in the ink, and on the paper in front of him draws the character for the word attention. That's the answer. What's the highest wisdom? Attention. But the student or the seeker says, is that it? That's all? That's the highest wisdom? Isn't there something else? So Ikkyu takes his calligraphy brush again, And next to the first character for attention, writes another character for attention. So it's attention, attention. The student, the seeker says, that doesn't, how is, that doesn't seem very subtle. Is that it? Isn't there something more? And as you might gather where the story is going, if if you've heard this before too, uh, Ikkyu picks up his, his calligraphy pen and writes one more character. Attention, attention, attention. And it really, whenever I've gone on retreats and, um, and I've, I feel like I've been lucky to practice in centers and systems that are very broad in their approach, meaning they, they don't get too doctrinaire about specific techniques. They don't get too partisan about um, this tradition versus that tradition. Uh, I forget who it was that said it, but the, there was a, the, the characterization of the Insight Meditation Society and, and their style of Dharma as being kind of the Unitarian Universalists of Buddhism, that they're, they're open and accepting of all 
facets of, of Buddhism and including the wisdom traditions of, of other religions and other, and other traditions too. <clears throat> so it, it, when I've been on retreats there, I should say what I was going to is get to is that the practice really seems to boil down to that, that the simplicity of that, that we're learning how to pay attention. And, and as we learn more closely how to pay attention, there's certain insights about the nature of ourselves, the nature of our experience that reveal themselves, that just emerge and they're born out of the, the clarity of attention that we develop. So that was my basic understanding of the story. Um, now, uh, in the Sangha, one of our, I hope you'll still be a guest teacher, but one of our guest teachers um, is a, a creative writing teacher named Howard Axelrod. And Howie came, I think, sometime over the summer or spring last uh, this year uh, to give us a, a writing exercise and a discussion about uh, writing and, and as an exercise in attention. And last week I published a conversation I had with him about his new book or newer book called The Stars in Our Pockets, which is really a, a beautiful look at uh, how the, the digital world and our lives in the digital world are sadly, in his view, and I, I'm very sympathetic to this, creating a kind of inner climate change. And in this inner climate change, certain capacities that have been um, part of our, our heritage for a long time are starting to wither and, and atrophy and die. Attention span being one of them, compassion, empathy, patience. These are, these are all under attack in a way. And um, I don't want to get too down here, but... <laughs> But the good news is our practice is a way to re, you know, re, rehabilitate and, and preserve our attention. But in the book, in, in The Stars in Our Pockets, he, he shares the story about Ikkyu and, and the seeker. And he, he had some very, as he does, he had some very insightful reflections about this, this interchange or the exchange between the seeker and the student, or seeker and the Zen master. So I just want to share some of his words. I, I was hoping to have him come for one more talk. I had two other teachers lined up to come in this fall, um, and both of them got tied up in their own creative projects. Howie's, Howie's in the process of writing a novel, his first novel. <clears throat> and um, another uh, teacher that I was going to bring in was is finishing a record that he's an album that he's making. So in, in absentia, I want to share with you a little bit from Howie. Um, so he's, he's, he's explaining about this, this, this teaching that the Zen master tried to give, the three words of attention, attention, attention. How he says, the implication of the repetition is that there are many kinds and many levels of attention. For AQ, practicing attention with this in mind and then, and then practicing attention with nothing in mind leads to the highest wisdom. Now that, that phrase is a, is a curious one, and I, and I just want to leave it open as a kind of a question slash riddle to, to, to chew on a little bit. But so I'm going to re read that bit again. Practicing attention with this in mind, that there are many levels of attention, many kinds of attention. 
practicing with this in mind and then practicing attention with nothing in mind leads to the highest wisdom. But, how he says, perhaps the most telling, or perhaps most telling, is the seeker's response. His impatience with the first answer, which he takes as a personal insult. Is that it? Isn't there something more? And his lack of curiosity with the second answer, saying he doesn't see much subtlety in Ikkyu's repetition. He's incurious. He doesn't see much subtlety there. And then how he says, when curiosity about subtlety is exactly what Ikkyu's repetition demands. Curiosity about subtlety is exactly what Ikkyu's repetition demands. The very kinds of attention Ikkyu implies are the highest wisdom, include patience, that is the ability to remain in mystery and not reach after reason, and curiosity. These are the very kinds of attention you need to contemplate his answer, the very kinds of attention the seeker does not have. And I'll be riffing on that a little bit more in the, in the sense of patience and curiosity uh, as we come into the practice. <clears throat> but born, sort of building on the foundation of an interest in our attention and being patient and curious with the process of cultivating intention, when we meet, I'm trying to give some exercises each week around uh, ways to explore your own attention and, and then to explore kind of the implications of what comes to you when you look in a particular way. And I'm trying to frame these exercises and these, these practices um, as options to play with. They're optional, all of them. And they're meant to be tools to support you in traveling and walking along your path. So I try to see the contemplative journey as essentially an artistic one. We, and, and to put a to fine point on that, you know, in art, we take raw material, we take what's given, whether whatever medium, whether we're in raw sound, raw visual, raw word, and we work with it. We manipulate it, we play with it, we adapt it. And in the process of working with it, we start to develop a new way of expressing something within us vis-a-vis -vis the medium of the art. And in work, and I would say in, in the in the in the contemplative path, the, the curious thing is we're the artist, but we're also the subject of the art. So we take the raw material of our life, you know, our, our history, we take the raw material of our, of our immediate feelings, sensations, thoughts, and consciousness, the key thing, 
our consciousness. And we start to look at the relationships between these things. We start to explore what we can do with these things. And we and, and, and working with them in a very creative way, uh, my sense is that people start to develop a, a, a less um, programmed way of living. Meaning you're not, you're, you're the, 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 um, the way you interact with the world isn't so preconceived. It's not defined by things you've done in the past. It's not defined by reactive patterns. There's a, there's a freedom of expression that is not defined by, um, by anything. You, it's a really driven by your choice. When you, when you when you really understand the, the whole dynamic here, but in terms of exercises, meditation exercises, <clears throat> last week uh, I shocked many people. I know I, I got a few emails, um, and I taught breath awareness practice. This is something that you know I I, <laughs> I know it's something that almost every other teacher might start with, um, and I after. Over a year now, working with some of you in the Sangha, I finally dropped the breath practice. And, you know, I, I personally feel that the breath awareness is more of an advanced practice now. And I, you know, I've, you've heard me say this before, but the, the main reason for that is if, if people are given the breath to focus on too early in their journey, it's very easy to inadvertently set up or to create a setup becomes a setup in a way where the practitioner feels that their practice is going well when they're with the breath and they feel that their practice is flagging or failing or do not doing so well when they're off the breath. So, you know, I try to have this, uh, a more graduated approach to working with experience and I try to emphasize just being really gentle and curious and patient and interested and, and I try to give you choices around where you put your attention so that when we sit you're able to calm down and be, get comfortable with just ordinary experiences that happen and you're not creating conflicts or, or getting into struggles with things that come up that they that anything that comes up is 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 seen through the broader lens of the wisdom that Anything that arises is capable of teaching us something. But anything that occurs in our practice, within you know, within the safety of our practice, can teach us about uh, the nature of what it is, and then also the nature of how we're relating relating to it. And, and um, that's really what the, the Dharma is about: is like looking at what's going on, and then really exploring how you're relating to things. But the thing I want to emphasize tonight around the breath as we continue, and I just build on the instructions from last week a little bit, is that we're using the breath as a tool to develop awareness. The breath is a tool for developing awareness. When it's, it's, again, it's all too easy to sort of think that when we try to focus on the breath or be present to the breath that the aim is to stay with the breath there's something like intrinsically important about the breath itself and there are wonderful health benefits and energetic benefits to breathing so i don't want to deny that 
But in the, the Dharma context, the breath is there as a tool for refining our attention or our awareness. So last week, when I introduced it, I said, the basic instruction I'll be giving is when we sit, we start with a sense of, of, of gentle relaxation and just tune into the, the, your basic felt sense of your body. So there's just, a, and I talk about this in the yoga most weeks that you, you, you feel your body from within really just tuning into the felt sense, the, the, the immediate pattern of experience for whatever it is, but you just tune into the immediate pattern of experience that your body is presenting. So that you're just sensitive to the whole body as you're sitting. And within that, just tuning into the coming and going of the breath. So, so you're sensitive to the whole body as you breathe in, sensitive to the whole body as you breathe out. Last week, the point I tried to make was in, in engaging with that activity and we're paying attention to that activity, both you know the sensation and the breath flow and paying attention to that, the added instruction was breathe in a way that feels comfortable or that supports comfort. And I tried to clarify that a little bit in the yin class last week, but I want to be clear that supporting comfort with the breath doesn't necessarily mean uncomfortable things vanish. So let's say, you know, as a simple example, let's say there's a dull ache in your hip while you're sitting and you're breathing with that and you're, and you're, wow, that ache, that ache isn't so comfortable, but he's telling me, he's asking me, how do I, how can I breathe in a way that supports comfort? So, you know, the way you breathe, whether it's fuller or subtler uh, deeper or more shallow, the way you breathe will have an influence on uh, the sensation potentially, but it will condition how you're feeling around the sensation. So there may be, you know, you feel a little calmer or you feel a little bit uh, more chilled out around that sensation, not less spun out as a consequence of the way you're breathing. So the, the breath dynamic can support comfort, even if it doesn't eradicate or mitigate or get rid of things that are sort of unpleasant or difficult. I just wanted to get that point. In. Um, but tonight, the, 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 the two, well, at least two other things I want to add are, one, you're going to find in any instruction that says, focus on, start here, you're going to find that you're not there all the time. So the mind wanders. This is no surprise. Minds have been wandering for thousands of years. And I don't expect anyone's mind here to be any different. So your mind wanders. And this is where I was coming back to trying to say, it's about awareness. It's not about staying with a breath. So one, one clever definition of mindfulness is, is that it's a, it's a paying attention to how the mind moves from one thing to the next. Paying attention to how the mind moves from one thing to the next. So when you see your mind move, that's part of the practice. When you see your mind depart from the breath, that's an essential part of the practice. And, the, and as I try to share from time to time, that the fact that that happens on its own is actually part of the data set you need to start collecting. 
in the Buddhist sense. The fact that your mind wanders on its own is data that your mind is not under the control you think it is. Or as a contemporary Burmese Saito, Utejaniya says, your mind is not your own, but you're still responsible for it. So last week I was saying with the breathing, you know, explore the karmic impact of how you're breathing. Like, can you, how, can you breathe in a way that supports comfort? <clears throat> this week, I want you to also include interest in what it's like when your mind wakes up from having wandered. So you, you're there, you are breathing, your mind departs and it will depart. If you're like me, it will probably depart anywhere between 500 to several thousand times in a 20, 25 minute sitting. So that's the, that's what happens. The question is when you wake up to it, when you wake up to your mind, having wandered, what kind of karmic impression do you want to make at that moment? So there's two, there's like a few options. There's the unhelpful option, which is to, get frustrated, self-flagellate, get irritated, and then the real bad one, to try harder. <laughs> like doubling down. Uh, and that's that's something I, 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 I have, I burned my own wheels on that one for a long time, just trying hard to stay present. So I want you to relax, know from the beginning your mind was wandering. And then the thing is when your mind wanders, when you realize it, and I said this in the class, but the best thing, the best piece of advice I ever get was when your mind wanders, relax. When you realize it, when you realize you, you've come out of a, a wandering loop, just relax. Let your face relax, let your body relax, let your mind relax, knowing there's no problem with that. Okay, so then I want you to feel the, the kind of the karmic implication that mean, what it, how, how does relaxing within the wandering condition your experience? How does that develop something in your experience versus when you wake up and there's maybe unconscious or subconscious criticism that, in, that injects itself into your practice at that moment? So you, you might see both, but I want you to intend to try to intend is the exercise, try to intend waking up with as much patience and gentleness and curiosity as you can. So for, for, for instance, tonight, when you wake up, once you've relaxed, I encourage you to be, be curious about what's happening. What, do you, what were you with? And to include now the um, kind of some of the instructions we've been working with in the past few months around Vipassana meditation, when you wake up and your mind is off the breath and you, you relax and you're curious about what's going on, you might use a tool of labeling and just say, whatever it is, is being known. So it might be thinking is being known, agitation is being known, confusion is being known, sleepiness is being known, low energy is being known. Um, excitement's being known, fearfulness is being known. Just you could kind of get curious around what the dynamic is 
and then just remind yourself that there's the it, there's the, the the feeling of the experience or there's the content of the experience and then there's the your your attention that's knowing it so the the expression x is being known or x is like this just tries to to frame the dharmic way of viewing your experience that there's the there's the experience and it's being known by awareness so the the metaphor that I was given when I was in um, Burma is that the meditator's mind is like a spider in the center of a web. So the web is sort of is meant to be uh, analogous for the idea of wide open consciousness. So a consciousness that's open and inclusive of whatever's going on. That's the open web of your awareness. And when nothing particularly vivid, nothing particular, nothing particularly attention grabbing is occurring, the suggestion is, as the instruction, the, the spider hangs out in the center of the web. So the center of your web is your body breathing. That's where you hang out when nothing special is going on. That's your, like your home root or your, per, uh, uh, your home plate or your perch. And then when something lands in your web, tugs at your attention or that you wake up to having wandered into it. And you realize that at that point, wherever you are in the web, you're noticing a, your knee, you're noticing a sound of the wind, you're noticing some thoughts about something I said, you're noticing whatever it might be. You could just recognize, like, you wake up to it, relax. Notice some, be a little curious around what's happening, just investigate what's, what, what did I wake up from? Oh. Sensation is being known. It's my knee, right? That's the thing that I was noticing. And then, you know, if, if there's nothing else particularly going on and that sensation kind of uh, changes or dissolves, you can come back to your perch. You can come back to the center of the web um, uh, of your body breathing. So this is, this is another uh, kind of I know I'm, I'm juxtaposing two metaphors of the center of the web and the perch, but they're really the same thing. So you can be a spider in a web or you can be a bird on a perch. <laughs> but the, the idea is you have a place to rest. And when you're with the breath, it's not like you're just uh, zoning out on the, or zoning in on the breath to uh, without curiosity. Uh, when you're fully breathing and sensing the whole body breathing in, whole body breathing out, I want you to bring a sense of curiosity around how you can breathe in a way that supports comfort. Do you have to breathe more fully, a little more shallowly? Do you imagine the body like a, like a, 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 a jellyfish, as I sometimes call it, like with, with, in water or a sponge float, floating in water? Play with some of these ideas that we've covered in the past and see how you can breathe with the body in a way that supports comfort. That is bringing a quality of both steadiness of presence and clear perception together in what is called shamatha vipassana. So shamatha is the steadiness of aspect of the practice. Vipassana is the clear seeing, the sharp attention part of the practice. And whenever we focus on anything with our full attention, whether it be the body and breath or whether it be a sound 
or whether it be a sensation other than the body, I mean, other than the breath, or whether it be um, a pattern of thought, whatever we give our full attention, there's those two components arising together of steadiness of presence and clear seeing. And that's what we're, we're nurturing slowly um, each moment of the practice when we work this way. So full embodied breathing. When you wake up, relax, check in, get curious. What was going on? What is going on? Oh, that's just thinking. That's thinking. Thinking's being known. Or if you want to get more specific, you can. You can label thinking however you'd like. But the phrase it's being is being known reminds you that there's one side of it, the experience that's the content, and the other side is the awareness that's recognizing it. Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's talk, and I hope the reflections I offer, as always, I hope my reflections are stimulating, that they uh, trigger some curiosity and interest and freshness of mind and, and presence for your practice. And I hope it helps support your apprehension of the everyday sublime. That's always what it's about, just realizing the numinous right here, right now. Um, again, if you'd like to practice with me and Terry and support the show while doing so, consider joining the Riverbird Sangha. You can learn more about this at joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. But essentially, it's a low-key, relaxed community of practitioners based around the practices of yin yoga, qigong, and meditation. If that sounds of interest to you, head over to joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. I hope to practice with you soon, and until then, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I'll see you in the next episode. Take good care.